This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation this week. I will be with you through Friday. I'm wondering if you are ready. Is it is it time in your head for step three of reopening? I'd like to hear from you in the next little bit. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. I know business owners in this province are saying, finally, step three of reopening begins first thing on Friday and includes restaurants allowed to reopen for indoor dining, gyms and fitness centers allowed to reopen at 50% capacity, sporting events are allowed, and retail is allowed to open to the number of people that can maintain two meters of physical distancing. These are some of uh, the criteria as we move into step three of reopening on Friday. Ryan Malo is Senior Director of Provincial Affairs Ontario with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and joins us for this discussion. Hi, Ryan. Good afternoon. So how was the news received that Step 3 would take place five days earlier than the original date of July 21st? So I think there was a little bit of relief for those businesses that are still closed, the ones you mentioned, indoor dining, gyms and fitness, event spaces, to finally have a date. Um, it's been a really long time coming, especially in this third lockdown, which happened back at the beginning of April, was only supposed to be a month, and then for, for these businesses, turned out to be three. So on that side, I think it's pretty positive. On the flip side, you know, the government put the thresholds out in the roadmap, and we passed them a couple weeks ago to get to stage three. So there's also a little bit of frustration out there that it has taken this long uh, that we didn't see those businesses open along with the hairdressers uh, that had opened in step two. So what is involved now for business owners who are allowing people in their facilities for the first time, in some cases, nearly eight months? Yeah, so there's a lot of planning and prep on the business owner side. You got to call your employees back. You have to, you know, if you're a restaurant, get your supply chain back in gear. There are still uh, PPE requirements from uh, face masks or shields uh, in the event of waitstaff, as well as things like plexiglass that is required. There's also a fair bit of compliance that they need to do. Business needs to make sure that they're not only screening their employees, but oftentimes screening their customers, um, especially if it's a service business like a hairdresser uh, or a restaurant setting. There's a lot of signage that's required from capacity to those passive screening sides that we see on on doors. So there's a lot of prep work uh, involved in getting the operation up and running, but there's still a fair bit of compliance uh, around COVID that's required as well. And it's important because we know that the Ministry of Labor inspectors are going out uh, to make sure that businesses are following the rules. And there's a pretty hefty fine, I think it's an $800 ticket uh, for businesses that are found non-compliant. You mentioned about uh, business owners calling employees back, and in this case, five days earlier than the original plan. It's interesting, uh, when my husband and I were down in Niagara-on-the-Lake a couple of weeks ago, I chatted with the proprietor of a pizza restaurant, and he said it has been extremely tough getting employees back uh, because of the federal government benefits, that not everybody wants to come back as long as they can still get these benefits. Are you hearing a lot of that? Yeah, we're hearing a fair bit, and we're, we're seeing in other jurisdictions as well that are a little ahead of us on reopening, the U.S. in particular, um, and the hospitality sector in particular as well. It's been, you know, we've seen patios full across the city. It's been really great, um, but it has been difficult to get staff to come back and to get staff to come back in numbers. We're hoping that that will sort itself out a little bit as restaurants in particular are allowed to be more open, that there is more uh, coverage for servers, more customers coming in, more opportunity for tips and things like that will help draw some of those people back out. But it's something that we're watching very closely. Prior to the pandemic, uh, labor shortage, and not just skilled labor, in some cases, just finding a warm body uh, to do a job was a huge difficulty. It was actually the top barrier uh, for small businesses across the province. It took a bit of a backseat in the pandemic, but I think we're seeing some of those issues uh, start to come back, not just the pandemic-related ones around the government program, but also an issue that was already there 
Um, and it's certainly going to be the, the next challenge for governments to watch uh, as we look towards recovery and making sure that we do get the economy back up and running in full. Ryan Malo is with me. He's Senior Director of Provincial Affairs Ontario with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Ryan, we have some listeners who want to get in on the chat. Uh, Mike in Clearview, you have a question or comment? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a question. I would like to know where us or when that we... Oh, let's reword this. When can the ballroom dancers of the world <laughs> get out there and go to a ballroom dance? Well, I, I think I may have the answer for you, and maybe Ryan can also comment on this. And my dad is a dancer and uh, has really been missing being able to do that. Um, as part of the criteria for step three, it says food and drink establishments with dance floors with indoor capacity will be limited to the number of people that can maintain a physical distance of two meters with a maximum capacity of 50% indoors and 50% outdoors. Does, Does that, that help? Apply a li- rented halls. So like in terms of renting a hall to have a gathering? Yeah, those are things that have used to go on quite regularly throughout Ontario before the pandemic. And those are the things that are missing now. Now, you can get into a bar and go dancing. That's not what I'm talking about. Or you can go to a legion and go dancing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these places that have regular ongoing weekly or monthly ballroom dances. And, you know, they could serve food, but they're not known as um, food or eating establishments. Well, Ryan, uh, maybe you can help me out with this. Um, I do know that the limits for social gatherings and organized public events, presumably ballroom dancing would fall into that, will be 25 people indoors and 100 people outdoors. Yeah, so when it comes to, to dance and dance classes and, and dance studios and those, those sort of things, they've uh, followed the same rules as gyms and recreational fitness. So those should be back at 50% uh, capacity maximum, I believe, of a thousand people indoors uh, as of Friday, um, the 16th. So that's some of the good news there. On the dance side, there may be some additional restrictions, in particular around masking. Um, that's sort of the the question mark, and we know as well with uh, wedding venues will be back open at uh, 50% capacity indoors on the 16th as well. There are some questions around whether or not the dance floors in those settings um, will be limited or not. It's something that was asked. Uh, during the government briefing last week and something that they're going to come back to us with. Um, but dance classes and that sort of thing should be back as of Friday. Okay, thank Mike. Very much. Okay, thank you for calling. Well, Mike's question um, to this point uh, on educating people that it's safe to return to this level of reopening and what is actually involved in this level of reopening, a lot of people like Mike, you know, they don't know the specifics. They haven't read all the fine details. So what's uh, how is, is that going to play out and how much of a part will business owners play in the education of their customers? I think they're going to play a, a fairly large part, and it's it's going to be a little because we know with things like around masking in particular, businesses have kind of been asked to to be the mask police. Most of the regulations don't actually put the onus on the customer coming in to have the mask on, but the business to enforce uh, the mask rule. And we know that that has been uh, contentious and put a lot of business owners in some uh, with customers who who don't want to be wearing that mask. Um, at the same time, business owners are still trying to educate themselves on what is needed as well. Um, you know, for example, restaurants have to take in all the contact information of not just whoever booked the table, but every single person. Um, servers technically should be wearing face shields because patrons don't have to be wearing masks while they're eating. Um, uh, personal services, uh, when they come back or when they expand rather on Friday, when they're allowed to do services with a mask off, um, such as a beard trimming or a lip waxing, that will also require the person performing that service. Uh, to wear a shield, mm. not to mention all of the signage requirements, the screening, active and passive for both employees uh, as well as uh, customers and patrons. Um, there's there's a lot there on the compliance side. And unfortunately, government hasn't done a fantastic job of, of advertising it and letting business owners know what they need to do. So oftentimes we catch them scrambling, oftentimes after they've already opened, learning that there's something that they're missing or need to be doing. Well, Ryan, what I'm thinking about gym owners, fitness centers, I mean, the ballroom dancing is interesting because people need other people and they need a group event to do that. But for gyms, a lot of the uh, customers 
uh, have just been working out on their own. And if you've been into fitness your whole life, you've figured out a different fitness routine during the pandemic. So what kind of challenges are gym owners facing in, in trying to get their clientele back? So there's a couple ones for gym owners. First, it's making sure that they are are advertising as loud as they can, that their spaces are clean, that they are safe, and that it's okay to come back to the gym. Um, we know gyms in particular spent probably the most of any sector on things like PPE, cleaning supplies, and that sort of thing to make sure that, you know, equipment is being wiped down, um, that it's being distanced out, that plexiglass is around in, in some cases where it's needed to be. But the other, gym owner, the other challenge that gym owners are really facing is the timing of this reopening. Again, everyone's excited to get back and excited to be open, but the middle of July is not traditionally a high season for gyms. That usually comes later in the fall or the winter when the weather turns, certainly around New Year's when all the New Year's resolution folks uh, are out renewing or getting a gym membership. Um, but to, to get people to come back in the midst of the summer is an additional challenge uh, for that sector. And I think um, that that might be one that we see be a little bit slower going as opposed to, say, the, the restaurants with patios that have filled out as the weather has been good uh, over the summer. Right. And Brian, one last question before I let you go. Uh, step three uh, is the final step in the roadmap to reopening in Ontario. What about step four? When do owners expect to see everything go back to normal? Has there been any indication about that? So the, there has been some indication, and the, the government's reluctant to call it step four. I know right. we've colloquially been referring to it as step four because it's, it's just when this ends. So step three is the last part of the plan. Then there is when are you going to lift the restrictions? Uh, the government has announced that there are three key milestones we're going to have to hit on vaccinations. First, 80% of Ontarians will need their first dose. 75% will need their second dose. And no public health unit can be below 70% on that second dose fully vaccinated. When we hit those markers, uh, as long as the other, you know, the, the cases aren't spiking, the ICU and hospitalizations aren't spiking, that is when we should see, by and large, uh, most restrictions lift, including the capacity restrictions uh, that we see on those businesses opening on Friday. And masking as well, or will that be up to each municipality? Masking is going to be a TBD situation. The chief medical officer indicated that he was hopeful that they'd be able to uh, move it off of something that's being mandatory. However, they're not in a position to, to declare it yet. So right now, uh, masking looks like it's going to stay. But uh, as the case numbers get better, as vaccinations happen, the government may have more to say. Great information, Ryan. Thanks so much for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Ryan Malo is Senior Director of Provincial Affairs Ontario with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. I'm Jane for Libby and still to come on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. How are people managing in British Columbia with record high temperatures and some 300 active wildfires? And what does this all mean for the future? We will discuss this coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation this week. There are some 300 active wildfires across British Columbia's interior. 77 of those started just this past weekend. Imagine the challenges first responders are facing. And we're also wondering how is climate change fueling the fires, so to speak. Joining us for this discussion, Dr. Gordon McBain, climatologist and co-director of the Center for Environment and Sustainability and professor in the Department of Geography at Western University. And Dr. Eric Kennedy, assistant professor at York University in the Disaster and Emergency Management Program and an expert in wildfires. Hello to you both. Hello Thanks to you. So much for having us. Dr. Kennedy, I'll start with you. Uh, the challenges that the firefighters are facing, especially with so many additional fires in such a short amount of time. Absolutely. Look, this is a, an incredibly challenging situation, and these folks are doing very hard work. There are some challenges that are, are present in most wildfire seasons in British Columbia. So um, when we have fire conditions that are hot, that are dry, that are windy, uh, that really helps to uh, accelerate the fires and make them very difficult to fight in many circumstances. Uh, BC is also characterized by a wide variety of different landscapes, right? We're dealing with mountainous and hilly regions. 
uh, where fire can accelerate, but it's also very difficult to work in to um, be moving up and down these hills to get the firefighting aircraft in. Uh, and if you have a lot of fuel buildup as well, lots of, of forested areas with dense fuels, that creates a, a recipe for very powerful burns. But we've also got some specific challenges to this season. So mm-hmm. the things like simultaneous ignition, having 300 fires burning at the same time, that means that they're facing difficult decisions about which ones to fight and how to prioritize. Plus, there's the impact of COVID on firefighting operations, too. Well, right. That's true. We, we, and we're not even thinking about that in terms of fighting fires. Um, in the strategies to combat these fires, is there, is there a wide-ranging strategy to deal with all of them, uh, a strategic kind of approach, or, you know, is it an individual situation? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So at the tactical level, I mean, they'll be drawing up plans that are appropriate to the landscape they're working in, the kinds of fuels they're working with. And you really have to match up the firefighting to the kinds of, of scenes that they're dealing with. At a broader level, though, the, the principles of fighting these kinds of wildfires are really quite consistent. We need to build healthier forests. In many cases, that means uh, getting good fire back on the landscape. For so long, we've tried to suppress all fire. And we really need to recognize that fire plays an important role in these ecosystems and it needs to be there in, in healthy ways. We need to reduce the number of ignitions where we can and make sure that humans aren't sparking these fires um, because we are responsible for a, a portion of them alongside lightning. We have to learn how to live with fire and build resilient communities that we can evacuate safely, that can uh, withstand fire coming through them if it does happen to come up to the edge. And we need those kinds of effective and, and tactical interventions where the fires have started to know how to manage them, which parts we can allow to burn and which parts we need to tackle quickly. And so they'll be using a wide range of tools, depending on the landscape, the weather conditions and the resources available. Dr. Kennedy, you bring up uh, building climate uh, resilient communities. Dr. McBain, as a climatologist, you've done extensive research on this in the face of natural disasters like wildfires. Uh, Expand for us a little bit about this, the building of climate resilient communities. Oh, thank you, and thanks, Eric, for his good comments. I think the issue we have to address is that the climate is changing. It's uh, already changing, and it will continue to change for at least the next four or five decades and probably well beyond that. And in that time, we'll see, for example, in this case, a, a particularly increased number of very hot events. The number of hot days will probably at least three or four times higher by the middle of the century compared to what it was, uh, you know, 10 years or so ago. So we need to build our communities that are more resilient for extreme hot days, but also heavy precipitation events, the risk of flooding, depending on where you are, the risk of more tornadoes or wild wind events. And these things can happen in intersecting complex ways that really stress the communities when they're hit. And we need to have our communities working together, and that's why we wrote that report, is to how we need to have uh, a strategic strategy, not just a strategy, though, but actual things that we undertake, actions, as we say, so that we can, uh, let's say, make our homes more wildfire resilient, uh, built so they don't get flooded, that kind of thing, as well as having warning systems and emergency preparedness management advice to all our town citizens and things to take action now so that we're not caught like they were in the case of the Lytton fire. I actually grew up in B.C. and used to visit the Okanagan when I was a high school student as our summer holidays, and it's really tragic to see what's been happening, but it's going to get worse if we don't take actions to prevent these things from happening the way they've impacted us now. So, Dr. McBain, is this a foregone conclusion um, that what you are forecasting in terms of the middle of the century with the hot days, um, is there is there also the possibility in tandem with this of reversing the climate change that we've seen lead to, to these fires? Well, Yes, we can. Uh, we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions so that we aren't ramping up the, uh, the warming. But we have to recognize that the way the climate system works is that 
the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide is the most important one, uh, stay in the atmosphere about a century. And the climate system is still trying to catch up, in a sense, with the warming that is built into the system. So if we were to reduce our emissions globally to zero tomorrow, we'd still be warming uh, at the same rate of about 0.2 degrees C per decade uh, for most of the rest of this century, certainly through past 2050, 60. And we should remind people that Canada is warming at about twice the global rate uh, because of the geography, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the Canadian Arctic, about three times as warming. So when people talk about, when they talk about the Paris Agreement of two degrees C, well, that means four degrees C in most of Canada, including the interior of BC, and five or six or more degrees in the Canadian Arctic. So we need to reduce our emissions for our children and grandchildren all around the world, but we need strategies to recognize that the climate system is becoming more potentially harmful. Well, it is going to be harmful. It's not potentially. It is really already creating more uh, heavy rain events, more hot days, more risk of flooding. Um, and we need to redesign our community structures, our own personal homes and properties. Uh, I'm with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, and we have on our website a whole bunch of you know, homeowner brochures that you can acquire, just download what you can do to let's say, make your home less likely to be taken over by a wildfire than ones who don't take such action. Oh, very interesting. So, um, well, let me first go back to Dr. Kennedy for a moment. Um, What, you know, what is it about British Columbia that lends itself to so many wildfires? Yeah, that's it's a good question. And I mean, we have to remember that wildfires happen all the way across Canada. And um, unfortunately, we'll we'll be back here in a year talking about another fire story in another place. But there are some parts of, of the ingredients that make um, this recipe all the more potent out in British Columbia. Um, so part of this is, is the ability to have these prolonged, hot, dry, windy periods. Um, with the right fuels, fuels that want to burn. When I talk about fuel, I'm talking about trees, but also the stuff that's fallen off of trees onto the forest floor, uh, the grasses, all of that material. It, it's configured for fire. And when I say that, I mean that fire has always been part of these ecosystems. Many of the trees depend on fire. They, they need fire to return for their health, for reproduction, for their long-term sustainability. But when we add in that climate factor that drives up the frequency of these hot, windy, dry events, when we move people into the, the places that are forested, that are mixed in with the forested landscapes, this creates the potential for really dangerous and destructive kinds of burns that affect our communities. And Dr. McBain, and we're running out of time, and this is a fascinating conversation. What about here in Ontario? And in terms of you were speaking about the climate resilient communities and, and building homes to adjust to these wildfires. Is this something we need to be thinking about in the GTA across southern Ontario at all? Well, we do need to think about it, certainly in Ontario, because we, in southern Ontario, because we are warming and we'll warm even more with more hot days. We don't have quite the same wildfire, uh, let's say, hazard situation that they do in the interior of British Columbia, because, but nonetheless, when I look out my window of my house, I see lots of trees in here in London. We're the forest city. And, uh, you know, there is potential for these things, but they are not quite as frequent, as Eric said, in terms of the things that are happening in British Columbia, uh, particularly the interior where it's hot and dry and things. Uh, but we do have that risk of wildfires in many parts of Ontario, uh, particularly in more naturally forested areas, as he was speaking about. But our own cities, we need to worry about tornadoes and you know, flooding on the Thames River and the Don Valley uh, and those kind of things that can, you know, as decades ago, Hurricane Hazel hit. Uh, you know, we, we've had these kind of events and the risks of them is amplifying and we need to take actions. And that needs governments need to work together across all the communities between the different levels of government, different departments, to have a consistent strategy for reducing the risks of these kind of things by reducing our exposure and vulnerability to them. 
yes, Dr. McBain. Uh, in fact, you mentioned about flooding of the Don Valley. It's it's around this time of year into August, early September, that it is almost inevitable that we have massive rainstorms that end up flooding large portions of, of highways across Toronto. Yes, and you had the big uh, rain events back, was it 2003 or four when it cost the insurance company six or $700 million. In that case, it was a, a heavy rain coming down and overflowing the, the sewer system so that all of the water is collecting on the streets and on property and on, a, you know, on creeks as well. I mean, Finch Avenue Road with the whole bridge was wiped out across it. Uh, uh, and that kind of thing, but the water systems can fill it up, get into your home through the sewage system. So mm-hmm. the you know, the stormwater systems are connected, unfortunately, or and there were at that time to the the sewage systems and that means you you go to that lovely basement, you spend a lot of money making really nice to lie down and watch that T V and listen to the stereo and all the pictures and nice furniture. And that's under a meter of water. Yeah. We will have to leave it there because of timing. Uh, Great to get the information and expertise from both of you. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much for doing this. Dr. Gordon McBain is a climatologist and co-director of the Center for Environment and Sustainability. He's also a professor in the Department of Geography at Western University. And Dr. Eric Kennedy is assistant professor at York University in the Disaster and Emergency Management Program. It's Jane for Libby. I will be back with you again tomorrow after the new news. Speaking of the news, all the latest is coming up here in just a moment with Jeremy Logan. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on summer vacation this week, so it's you and me and the Zoomer Squad who join us every Monday at this time. David Kravitz is the Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hello to you all. Hi, Jane. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jane. Topic number one, the freedom of being double vaxxed. So as much of a transition as it was learning all of the rules and changing our behavior during the pandemic, now we go back to normal. And this may not be as easy or as comfortable as we may have thought. In fact, it might be a little stressful. So I'd like to get uh, the squad's comments on this. David, I'll start with you. Well, if you look at what the protocols are, start with, I don't think it's very clear what to do in each situation. Um, do you need a mask? Do you still need a mask? Do you not need a mask? Does it matter whether you're outdoors or indoors or going indoors? Um, I think that we're going to have a lot of uncertainty for a period of time, which is the price, I guess, we're paying for the changing information beforehand. I mean, we still have uh, senior public officials wearing a mask after being fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So that begs the question, am I really safe if I've been vaccinated? Why do I still need to wear a mask? I'm asking the question. I'm not trying to you know, belittle the answer. But there has been so much confusion about what you can and can't do and where and when you can do it that I don't think it's a surprise that there's going to be a struggle to find some equilibrium here. Well, that's exactly right, David. Um, You know, when I hit the two-week mark after my second shot and was reading the Public Health Agency of Canada guidance that I can now, as a fully vaccinated person, be inside with other people uh, who are fully vaxxed. I can hug other fully vaxxed people. I'll tell you what, Peter, uh, in my head, the freedom switch went off. So I've caught myself more than once walking across the parking lot to go into Loblaws or shoppers and forgetting my mask. Well, that, that's quick, Jane, because I, I, I'm in the same situation and I, I'm constantly, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, checking my behavior. Everything I do, I, I, so, you know, I was walking down the street the other day and I crossed because uh, there was someone coming towards me, and they crossed too, <laughs> and then we both crossed back, so we were walking in the middle of the road base. So, so that kind of sort of indecision and, you know, the, the sort of uh, 
uncertainty. Are other people vaccinated? Are other people susceptible to this? You know, like, I, I, I just don't know when that's going to end. I, I, I suppose it'll just take, um, I, it'll take time. You know, it'll take a few months, but but the, it, it's sort of these deep-seated uh, behaviors that we've been practicing for the last year and a half. Um, I, I don't think they're going to go away that easily. No, I, th- I think you're right. And, and I'd like to put this out to you as well, the Zoomer radio listener. If you've been uh, double-vaxxed for at least two weeks, uh, you now, in essence, are free to return to normal, but for the masking and social distancing inside of retail outlets, etc., are you finding it stressful? It, has it is it easy for you? Are you do you feel a certain amount of relief? How is it affecting you personally? Numbers to call are 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Uh, Bill, you join us every week from Nova Scotia and uh, I mean, are you feeling the same kind of feelings as we we are in Ontario or have you been feeling feeling freer for longer because of the the caseload being so low down there? No, uh, we're experiencing the same kind of thing that Peter and uh, David have talked about, the the indecision, the uh, anxiety around what you should do and what you uh, shouldn't do, especially uh, for people in long-term care. And we're hearing this from our Ontario CARP members, uh, uh, too, that uh, there's there's some anxiety, feeling that things are opening up uh, uh, too quickly. There's a fear of what uh, what could happen. And another aspect is that in many of the facilities, decisions are still being made by the facility uh, within the, the government rules. So uh, it's not consistent in terms of what you can uh, do. And it's, it's going to be a long time, I think, before, especially... Our, uh, our older citizens who have been uh, very concerned about and uh, fearful about the COVID, that they're going to relax enough to uh, enjoy, even though they and the people around them have uh, both their uh, both their jabs. I'm speaking with the Zoomer squad. It's Jane for Libby, along with Bill Van Gorder, David Kravitz, and Peter Muggridge. David, a therapist once told me that it takes between six and seven weeks for people to adjust to change. So this is also a change, even though we've lived our whole lives being normal. Uh, the pandemic has cemented in us a different routine. So we need to cut ourselves some slack, too. I think we need to cut ourselves some slack, but we also need to define change. And the, pro- and the problem here is that it's not cut and dried. Think about other situations, emergency situations, where there is a danger and the danger is then decreed to have passed. An all clear siren goes off saying that it's safe to go out again. A fire is put out or is, is extinguished. A building is inspected and you're told you can go back in now. Um, this is a very gradual uh, situation with literally tens of thousands of variables because I could be an elderly person in a long-term care home where a, a, a worker, a care worker has not been vaccinated and they're allowed into the home. I could be a person who has uh, received two vaccines and everybody in the home uh, has been vaccinated as well and there is no fresh outbreak. I could be outside in a park and about to go into a store or into a home. Um, in that home, some people have been vaccinated, some have not. So there's so many variables that I think your your excellent point about it takes six to seven weeks. That's if we know what the change is. I don't think in this case it's even clear yet where we are uh, along that continuum. And I think it's going to take several months before it sort of finds a, 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 you know, a point of equilibrium. I know you spoke about this last week uh, when you joined Libby. Uh, Peter, I mean, the Delta variant is clearly affecting people who've been vaccinated. The case of that Burlington long-term care home where it was brought in by an employee who wasn't either not vaccinated or not fully vaccinated. And 16 residents ended up contracting the Delta variant. One died. The rest were asymptomatic or showed slight symptoms. But we are still at risk having been double vaccinated yeah we're we're still at risk Jane. and uh there's there's talk now well uh, Pfizer has applied for um 
you know, approval to do a booster shot with the Delta variant in it. So, um, you know, it, it they, they they predicted this would happen, is that we'll be getting booster shots along the way with the different variants. So, uh, you know, um, the, the vaccination seems to work against, um, it mitigates symptoms, but um, it doesn't mitigate transmission. We will hear more about uh, there's an actual meeting today between Pfizer reps and uh, staff with the U.S. Uh, administration about moving forward or the possibility of moving forward with a booster shot as the research keeps changing. So uh, this is a very fluid situation. Rachel in Brampton wants to get in on the conversation. Rachel, you have a question or comment? Yeah, great, great show. Um to be honest, because I am fully vaccinated and I do have autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, from what I read on the internet, I'm not 100% sure. I'm not sure to what extent I'm uh, protective, right? Even though I'm double vac- uh, vaccinated, right? That's the stuff that scares me. I mean, um, they, I don't hear a lot of uh, this kind of thing talked about with Health Canada. What is the guideline? Uh, that's my question. What's the guideline people who, who have autoimmune disease? Who have an autoimmune disease? Well, that's interesting because, uh, Bill, you would have to be more cautious. I mean, the the data shows that if you've been double vaccinated with AstraZeneca, you are 92% protected against severe symptoms of COVID. If you've received an mRNA vaccine like Moderna or Pfizer, you're 95% uh, protected against severe forms of the disease. So even for the healthiest people, there is a slight risk of severe symptoms of COVID-19, even if you've been double vaxxed. So, so Bill, I mean, I, I, I know you're not a medical expert, but in terms of guidance that you think might be helpful for people who do have compromised immune system, how do you conduct yourself? Yeah, well, the the normal uh, the, the normal answer to that, and as you know, I well, I'm not a health professional. I've been in the health uh, 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 business for uh, almost forty years, and the normal uh, response would be you've got to talk to your own physician. Each person is different, especially if you're compromised. These uh, vaccines protect us from from being badly most people from being badly affected. Uh, by uh, COVID, but doesn't mean that you uh, won't get it and have some symptoms and doesn't mean that you can't transmit it. So you really have to look at, a ca- at, at your case. And of course, the problem that our CART members are having these days is that they, uh, they're still having trouble uh, getting to their family physician uh, if they have one. And many of them uh, don't have a family physician and don't know where to turn for these kinds of answers. The third problem is that Health Canada is not being very clear on its uh, on its recommendations. And, and you know, I think they're, they seem to be trying so hard to consistently update what they're saying. What it always sounds like is they're changing their opinion every day. And mm-hmm. people like the caller don't know where to turn and don't, don't know who to believe. Yes. Uh, obviously, as things are changing, it's better to be more cautious than to be more risky. We'll, we'll change topics on that. But again, the phone lines are open. You can weigh in at any time with our Zoomer squad as we discuss issues important to those 45 and older. Phone numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. So, squad, Canadians who are 75 and older as of next year, July are about to get a bonus from the Trudeau Liberals of $500. These one-time payments are expected to arrive in mailboxes during the week of August 16th. David, pardon me for being skeptical, but this is great timing ahead of a likely federal election. Well, it's at the very epicenter of the strategy. It's very obvious. I mean, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. Nobody can say it's a bad thing. Um, and I think it'll be very needed uh, by many of the recipients and less needed by others. But it's clearly part of, um, um, you know, the election rollout, the high-speed uh, rail between Toronto and Quebec. There's money being thrown at British Columbia. Uh, everywhere there's a chance to pick up seats. Um, 
there's going to be goodies coming our way. So uh, I can't say that it's bad, but I think it's kind of obvious what uh, what's going on. So, Peter, is this is this literally about buying votes or is this <laughs> <laughs> or does this sort of mark a change in a priority for people 75 and older for the government? Well, Jane, it is it is slightly coincidental, isn't it? But, um, you know, money never hurts. And, um, you know, these are these are groups of people who need Five hundred dollars. It'll it'll make a big difference to them, and um, so you know they tie in uh, an election goodie with a good move. I you know that that's just par for the course for uh, governments on the verge of an election. Well, and Bill, there is a two-parter to this. So there's the one-time yeah. payment of five hundred dollars, and then there is the promise of a ten percent raise in old age security for those seventy-five plus, but not until next July. So you got to vote in the Trudeau Liberals to get your 10% because it's not guaranteed any other way. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and you know, the other thing is, this is a reannouncement. This is not new. Right. In fact, uh, we, we had, we had uh, written, uh, we had written on this uh, uh, a month, a month ago when it was now the only thing that's new in this announcement is they now say it's going to be the week of August 16th. They'd already promised the five hundred dollars in in uh, in August. The other problem: there was a tremendous pushback uh, from our members because this is only for uh, people who are seventy five and older. And the people, this is the first time a government has ever made two classes of retirement uh, support, uh, splitting those between sixty five and seventy five, and those seventy five and and older. People were so upset that CARP. Paduk, which is a, a counterpart senior organization in Quebec, and the retired federal civil service organization, which represents in total a million p- uh, seniors across the country. We wrote a letter to the uh, uh, to the minister of uh, finance and the minister of seniors and said, "What are you doing? Why are you ignoring uh, the people between 65 and 75?" In fact. Uh, in their situation uh, and uh, with the changing costs as uh, as they've recently retired, many of them have more of a need uh, for more support at this time uh, than those who are older. And and 500 is uh, uh, to many people is a, a drop in the a drop in the bucket. bucket. So uh, so this uh, uh, this has created a very negative reaction among people and isn't going to get the government votes from a lot of seniors. That is the beauty of the re-announcement. If you don't provide a date up front, you can provide a date again and, and get more bang for the buck for your uh, initial announcement. And that's what's happening with that. Zoomers, there's going to be a third one. They'll announce when it actually went into the mail. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they also yeah, announced we put it in the mailbox time. this morning. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A one point three uh, percent increase in old age security. So a hundred dollars a year, and, and people were saying, you know, a hundred dollars a year, less than ten dollars uh, a month. Who are they trying to kid that this is going to help help anybody? And once again, it's these broad strokes. Many people, many of our CARP members are saying, why aren't you taking this money if funds are limited and aiming it directly at those people who really need it and not casting it like uh, like you're sowing grass seed on your on your lawn this summer and and no part of the lawn gets enough. Right. That is part three of this, that the benefits automatically increase by 1.3 percent this month, bringing the maximum pension amount to about $626 up from $618. You talk about a drop in the bucket. Okay, next topic uh, for our Zoomer squad, Bill Van Gorder, David Kravitz, and Peter Mugrich, along with me, Jane Brown, in for Libby Snymer. Zoomers and boomers and their real estate needs is the focus of a new survey by Royal LePage. Uh, Interestingly, more than a third of the over 3 million Canadian boomers are considering buying a home as their primary residence within five years. But this is not about downsizing. And David, I'll go to you first since you are a demographic expert. The research shows the majority of people are looking for homes the same size or larger, just in different locations. And they're making this move for lifestyle choices rather than financial choices. Well, I think it's very logical. Um, I, it, it, the market does segment. This doesn't apply to everybody. But 
I think what we're seeing now is the logical consequences of this. Um, I don't want to be in a retirement home slash nursing home, and that category is muddied unfairly, perhaps, but I don't want to be in a, quote, home. I want to continue to live where I'm living. And if where I'm living can't accommodate me aging independently or living independently, then I'll get someplace else. So I'll modify where I am now or I'll get someplace else because I want to be independent for as long as possible. And so this is a very uh, understandable, predictable uh, response to the worry about um, being thrown onto institutional But, care. David, I thought it was interesting that the homes that they are looking for are the same size or larger, because, you know, traditionally, when, pe- when people become empty nesters, they want to downsize, either into a condo or, or a smaller home. Well, I think some still do. I don't think it's all one way or all the other, but but it, it, you, you said it at the beginning, at the intro to the piece, it's lifestyle. So, how, is the place big enough to accommodate me as an independent person? I might need different facilities, different equipment, a uh, different amount of space. Second of all, what activities do I intend to pursue to be active and engaged? It's all part of really the Zoomer uh, philosophy of you know, the reinvention of aging. I'm not withdrawing from the scene. I'm not retreating from life. I'm in there. I'm doing stuff. I'm. I have interests. I need space. Maybe I want an art studio instead of that uh, extra bedroom. Maybe I want the uh, uh, whatever I want. Uh, I want a place that can support a very active, engaged lifestyle. And maybe my existing home can do it. Wonderful. Maybe I need someplace the same or bigger. Interesting. Uh, It's not at all surprising to me in any way. Okay, good. Uh, The other findings in the survey, the bank of mom and dad is still open as a quarter of boomers say they have or would help an adult child buy a home. And 40% of boomer homeowners have at least half their net wealth in real estate. So those are those are the highlights of this particular survey. Peter, you can choose to comment on any or all. Yeah, um, the the uh, real estate market's been very, very uh, profitable for this cohort. And it, it has been throughout. I, I you know, I'm trying to cast my mind back to when was the last time property prices dipped, and I think it was probably in the recession, the global recession in 2008-9. But um, it's been a uh, really uh, gold-plated investment for boomers, and they're sticking to it. You know, it's what they know, it's what's uh, delivered the goods, and um, they're they're not going to get out of it. And uh, it's just it's it's hilarious that you'd think uh, this would be a you know, the time when they slow down and they, they look to, you know, just age in place or, or downsize, and they're not at all. It's just this generation thinks big, and it always has, and it always will. Bill, what are your thoughts on the findings of this survey? Well, I, I, I try to smile when Peter talks about uh, uh, the boober generation being ones we thought would be uh, uh, would be staying a little uh, a little less active at this point. And I look at the uh, years of the boomer generation and, and uh, see that I'm well uh, past that. My, uh, my wife is, is uh, just at the end of it, and we don't feel like we're anywhere near ready to uh, settle down yet. I think one of, the, one of the reasons that this is happening is uh, the boomers are not feeling like that they're and They're feeling like they're at another, another beginning. You notice in that survey that over half the people across the country, more than half in Ontario, said that they wanted to renovate uh, their their homes. Uh, boomer generation are still active. They're still working. They're employed. They're still feeling uh, very much a, a part of, of continuing their life. They're not ready to slow down. And this is what uh, this survey is just showing that that housing is just another of those areas. Right. I mean, if you are healthy uh, and you are the oldest of the boomers, you're turning 75 this year. So they're, you know, 75 is young by today's standards. And at the, at the young age of the boomers, those individuals are turning 57. So those are the, those are the individuals who now have children looking at buying homes and not being able to afford them. So I guess, you know, they're probably more likely to be involved in the bank of mom or dad.
Okay, before I say goodbye to our Zoomer squad for another week, uh, I'd like to talk about CARP's new anti-ageism campaign. Uh, Bill, can you give us a, a synopsis? Well, I, I will tell you this is extremely important uh, to CARP. Uh, we have been finding that COVID has uh, has increased the uh, the evidences of of ageism of people treating older Canadians as if they're not able to make their own decisions. Uh, people treating them as 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 if they're past their their prime with no with uh, with no contribution left to make. And actually, David has given us tremendous leadership on this uh, program. I'd rather he talk about sure. what we have online because we finally got a tool that people can use themselves uh, to fight ageism. David, tell us more. Yeah, well, it started with a very anti-boomer column in the National Post uh, accusing boomers of uh, uh, being uh, cannibalizing the young like a terrible generation, did everything bad, it's all our fault, and the fact that housing is unaffordable is because we're so greedy. And it was, it was really, uh, I thought, outrageous. We uh, we wrote. I was I was able to work with Bill to write an op-ed re- rebuttal, which they they published in their online, not in their their print paper. And then it occurred to me, some of the statistics we turned out about what the boomer contribution has really been should be more widely circulated. So we created a toolkit that would enable everybody in this audience to be an advocate for the boomer and older generation. There's facts and figures, there's data that directly can refute the anti-boomer, anti-senior sentiment that's out there and that everybody should be armed with this information. It's not enough to lobby the government. We can say we have anti-ageism laws. But we also have free speech, so it's hard to stop everybody from saying, you know, okay, boomer, or calling COVID mm-hmm. the boomer remover, or some of the nasty things that have happened. But if we have the facts at our disposal, the fact that the 55 plus age group pays more in income taxes than Gen X and millennials combined, sure, um, still making a contribution, still paying our way. You just talked about the bank of mom and dad, the the, the things that happened to the world during our a lifetime, I'm not saying each and every one of us created it all, have been overwhelmingly positive, not negative. So there's a story here about a productive, creative generation, generations who are continuing to contribute. We are not net takers. We're not sitting back sponging off of the uh, taxpayers. We're continuing to pay the freight and to contribute to the society. And we felt Give that information to everybody. So you can go to carp.ca, download our toolkit. It's a PDF. It's easy to read. It'll give you all the facts and figures that you can take part in those discussions when they come up in your circle, among your friends, among other generations that you meet. We want everyone equipped to be a battler for our generation. Oh, that is super creative. Okay, thank you so much. Carp.ca for more on the anti-ageism toolkit. Squad, thank you again for your time on this Monday. Thanks, Jane. Thanks so much, Thanks, Jane. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, our Monday Zoomer Squad. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up next, are you ready for Step 3 of Ontario's reopening plan? We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.